Hello and welcome to Everybody A, Everybody Gay. A queer exploration of pretty little liars. With your hosts, Speak Pirate, aka Joanna. I'm here, I'm queer, and I have a cat named Spencer. And your other host, LCO123, aka Vina, a proud member of the Church of Vanderjesus. Oh, and tonight we have the first season finale. Oh, the episode is For Whom the Bell Tolls, as in Ask Not, It Tolls for Thee. Uh, as the title suggests, it is full to the brim of moments of reckoning. Spencer almost dies twice. Allison is an avenging angel. Emily might have to move to Texas. There's a Vandermeeren smooch and a ringing final scene for Ian Thomas. Yes, you know, after reviewing The Perfectionist, it's really fun to jump back into truly PLL at its best here. This is a fabulous episode. It is tightly plotted. It's suspenseful, but it's also emotionally satisfying. And I really feel that it is doing something that later finales were trying but failed to do, which is balancing the reveals, the twists, and the action with this kind of groundedness and a lot of great character work while also letting the liars be smart and not just stupid in making very questionable choices as they will do more and more as the series goes on. That's a great point. And it also does a good job of laying some mysteries to rest while creating a few new ones, uh, which again is something that I feel the balance of that really shifts as the series goes on. But man, it is really tight here. These first two seasons are really the the best era of the show i think and the suspense and the many many things that happen in this episode uh really do make it a definite classic totally agree and certainly we'll get into this as we go on but i think part of what makes this such a successful episode is that it is a complete episode it is not one half of a two-parter we are not ending with five million cliffhangers um, we are not ending with anybody literally hanging, you know, other than Ian. It is just, uh, it is, it's really wrapping some things up in a way that feels uh, almost in some ways more triumphant than many of the cliffhanger uh, finales of the later seasons. Totally agree. Do you want to take us on in? Sure, I would love to. Um, we open in Emily's room. The liars are all, they've, they've, uh, they're watching the videos that were on the flash drive. Currently, they're watching a video of Jenna um, being pretty darn gross with Toby. Uh, she's undressing him. She's basically threatening to accuse him of rape if he doesn't have sex with her. And uh, um, the liars are pretty horrified, Spencer in particular, once, uh, once it becomes clear what direction this video is going, asks them to shut it off. And they're just kind of sitting there stunned. Aria, interestingly, is the one to say, we're young girls in our room, we're naked. Spencer says, exposed. And Hannah posits that someone was getting off on it. And <laughs> interestingly, Spencer says, we all know who had a, a thing for younger girls. Is it Prezra? No, it's Ian Thomas. Um, but they, they posit that Ian has been watching them for years. Spencer says it's not too late to help Allison. She posits basically an alliance with Jenna, where if they find out what Jenna knows, then they can kind of figure this out for real. Allison gave them something that Jenna wants, Spencer says. Uh, and this is a really, really interesting scene in terms of the liars kind of taking back some of the power 
and also recognizing the ways in which, uh, you know, they've been being spied on for years, which is unfortunately something that teen girls in our culture experience time and time again. Uh, yes, I have that same, I have a, the similar note of when Spencer says, we all know who had a thing for young girls. I mean, every adult man in this town, basically, but, you know, they mean Ian. Well, of course. Um, <laughs> I also like that when the proposal about Jenna comes up, uh, Hannah and Emily are totally opposed, but it's Aria who really backs Spencer's play and also mm-hmm. votes for a potential uh, attempt at an alliance. Mm-hmm. But uh, we shift off of them. We go into the Montgomery house where Byron has forced Ella to meet him in person to go over their schedules with the kids because he wants as much face time with her as possible to negotiate who's picking Mike up after practice, etc. She compliments his coffee and touches his hand, which is his cue to try and guilt her into attending slash helping to host the faculty mixer that is taking place at their home that very evening. Ella is not into it, rightly pointing out that it would give the impression she is welcoming people into their home, although she no longer lives there. I would also like to point out that it is a good idea to invite people you want to come to important events in advance and not try to trick them at the last moment with guilt. Aria overhears their conflict and volunteers to help her dad host because she thinks of herself as the third adult in the household, which leads to bad boundaries and life decisions. Aria then becomes distracted from her parents' drama by a flurry of texts from Prezra, which presumably are from last night, but went unread in the midst of the Nat video discovery drama. Prezra's texts are alarming, we need to talk. There was a cop here. Ella continues trying to talk to her daughter about her marital drama, but Aria is just in a flutter, and we get our first reckoning as she rudely tells her mom to fish or cut bait. Dad cares too much to say it, but either you love him or you don't, so you should probably figure it out because it sucks for all of us. Friendly reminder that you don't have to process your trauma on anyone else's schedule, Ella! Byron and Aria in this moment deserve each other. Ella stands in the kitchen, stunned and perhaps questioning her parenting choices. Yes, as always, Aria takes Byron's side. Um, I do love, you know, you coined the term reasonable man for Byron, and I, it's such an appropriate term for both Byron and Ezra. I love, you know, reasonable man makes his triumphant return in this episode as he says it's just a party Ella which is very much in the scene like in the scene at the dance when they have that whole metaphorical conversation about pizza he goes it's just pizza Ella um which you know reasonable man strikes again but uh yes and of course Ezra in the most infuriating way possible which will become more infuriating in a later scene uh has done has sent Arya these very alarming texts and given her zero follow-up as is his way. As is his way. Um, over at the Marin house, Hannah is planning a day in bed or perhaps a life in bed. She comes downstairs to collect her laptop. And Ashley gently but firmly tells Hannah that she's going to make her go to school. She relates how Hannah got Ashley out of bed after, um, after Tom left Ashley. And then Ashley sits behind Hannah and asks about the letter. She's confused when Hannah says that she didn't get a letter from Caleb. Hannah goes on to say that Caleb got on the bus to Bastardville 
And uh, Ashley very sweetly says he won't be alone there. Oh, how I love the Marin women. This is such a great scene because Ashley's instincts are just so on point. We saw that she was going to be willing to let Hannah take a mental health day right after Caleb left. But we see here she understands that the right thing to do at this moment is to prevent Hannah from wallowing and actually gently encourage her to go to school. I love when she's sitting there and she's rubbing Hannah's back and she's like talking through this with her daughter. She's just such an involved and such a present uh, parent. And I think that that's, we'll, we'll talk about that more uh, later on in this episode, but I, I just really think that um, she's doing a great job with her daughter here. I totally agree. And, you know, I didn't even think about this, um, but in this whole opening sequence, we really kind of get a sense of four very different mother-daughter relationships. This is a rare PLL episode that actually has all four moms in it. And we get to see little glimpses of those really, really different dynamics. And it's clear that Ashley and Hannah have the strongest bond here. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. Um yeah, I can't think of any other episodes off the top of my head that start with like scenes that have every single like parent relationship in them. So, hmm, hmm. good call. Um, over at the house of Hastings, Spencer is making a sandwich as Ian does his husbandly thing and uh, promises to meet Melissa at the church later that evening uh, for the arrangements for the christening uh after he leaves on a long glare from spencer she asks melissa if those plans might be premature what if the baby is not born a human melissa chastises spencer and tells her that's not funny um but spencer comes back with well humor is subjective which is i mean it's not a great response when you hurt someone's feelings um melissa gets really offended and she uh, does a patented Melissa storming out of the room. Uh, then Spencer and Veronica have a little bit of back and forth where Veronica tells her that that was unkind. Um, Spencer is kind of looking at her mother and kind of looking at the completely enormous uh, like silver urn of apples that is on the Hastings kitchen counter. Um, this is like bigger than the prop that I made fun of on the Fields breakfast table, which was also a humongous bowl of fruit. Um, it's good that the liars are like getting all of their, you know, fruits and vitamin C's uh, here in their homes because that's really enormous. It's distracting me. But Veronica uh, tells Spencer that apologizing to Veronica uh, is not what she needs to do. She really is encouraging Spencer to talk to her sister. Yeah, this scene really grossly starts with Melissa referring to Ian as daddy. So we all just can like throw up in our mouths over that one. But I do love Spencer's just sort of like sideways smile when she says humor is subjective. <laughs> oh, Spencer. Well, uh, you know, it is cruel what Spencer says. Veronica's right to chastise her for that. But it's also pretty cruel to make Spencer live in such close quarters with Ian, who Spencer has made no bones about you know, being afraid of. Mm -hmm. forcing, forcing Spencer to live with him and then act like Spencer is the one who's making trouble all the time is, uh, it, it's no it's no Ashley Marin level of parenting, that's for sure. No, no, it is not. It's kind of like straight out of the patriarchy handbook, I would say. Mm. Um, over in Emily's room, uh, she's kind of grinning to herself while she gets a message from Samara. 
I really like this detail of she hears Pam at the door and immediately very quickly closes down that lesbian stuff on her laptop, even though it's just like an innocent message from Samara saying hi. Um, you could tell that things are still kind of strained between the two of them as Pam comes in. She looks serious. And I thought this was kind of shitty of Pam. Emily asks if Wayne is okay. And Pam waits like probably a good like 25 seconds for in, before she's like, oh, yeah, your dad's fine, honey. Um, but she comes and sits on Emily's bed and she she tells her that Pam that um, that Wayne is going to be stationed in Texas. Pam is advocating for the family to move there for a year. She wants to keep everybody together and she thinks it could be a fresh start for them. Emily says that she's just starting to feel like she belongs, but Pam somewhat condescendingly says, honey, you're 16. You belong with your family. Yeah, I, I like this. We haven't seen a lot of Emily and Pam in recent episodes since they kind of had their their breakthrough after Nick McCullers uh, stormed into the school. So this is kind of a, a nice glimpse of, um, you know, the the sort of armistice that they have reached with one another where they're not openly battling, but they're not completely comfortable with each other either. My read on this scene where Pam hesitates like that, I think that Pam and Wayne are probably having some marital issues here. Um, I, I think we saw that a little bit last time Wayne was home. Um, it's definitely not easy to be in a long distance relationship with your partner over you know, the many years that he's been deployed and they have not been with him. So I kind of think that when Pam hesitates, I think she might be maybe thinking about saying something about that to Emily, but then because she's not Ella, she chooses to keep it to herself. That's just my read, but it's always been my interpretation of that particular moment with them. I like that interpretation. Yeah, that makes Be sense to me. Because Pam still goes to Texas, even though Emily wants mm -hmm. to stay and go to school, Pam still goes, which I think, I, I mean, I think that's an unusual move for Pam Field mm -hmm. if there wasn't something else that was coming into play. Totally, totally. Um, but this will lead us into such a great storyline of Emily staying with the Marins, which is yes. Yes. one of the one of the best things ever. Top, top plotline for Emily for sure. Uh, um, back in Aria land, she is storming down the hallway on the phone, panicking in the general direction of Prezra. Uh, she thinks they may be headed for a legal reckoning, uh, but he's on the phone coming towards her. Uh, as well with the news that he has been with the principal. He's given his resignation, but surprise, it's because he got the job at Hollis. Arya hits him hard enough for Prezra to say, ouch, and although I don't condone physical violence, I do wish he had picked a target lower than his shoulder. He tells her that he won't be her teacher anymore, which according to him means that they can be together and go out for coffee and to readings and finally have a life outside his apartment. Pshaw to statutory rape laws. He's a rich white guy. That doesn't apply to him. Aria calls him professor and he says he will be at the faculty mixer that night. She offers to show him her bedroom, which he acts like is extremely hot because he's turned on by dating a teenager. <laughs> yes um yeah the way that she says that it's clear that they both think it's like super sexy but it mostly just completely reinforces how very young she is and also how much their relationship has completely been on his turf 
that they've been, you know, a together for all this time. They've exchanged I love you's, but he's never even been in her bedroom, which, I mean, is accurate, appropriate, because he's her teacher, but it just sort of proves how inappropriate this whole situation is. 100% agree. Yes. Um, okay, I feel very lucky to get to talk about this next scene, especially since you just got a Presrio one. Uh, <laughs> my condolences. Um <laughs> In the hallway, Mona and Hannah are walking and talking. Mona is very clearly over this whole Caleb situation, but she very kind of hilariously uh, tells Hannah, you know, Caleb was your first poor boy, and that's oh so romantic. Uh, Hannah brings up the letter, not in a way where she necessarily thinks Mona had anything to do with her not receiving it, but just in a way where she's sort of musing on this fact that there's this alleged letter circulating out there. Uh, Mona very smartly starts talking in hypotheticals about it. Suppose there was a letter. Would that change anything? Hannah kind of redirects to say that she's mad at herself for believing that Caleb loved her. And Mona, you can tell she kind of has a little moment here where I feel like the mask slips again. She sort of backs up and she's, she's, uh, she's kind of, she's so mad at Caleb here, but she's also so happy but she's also upset that hannah's upset but she's also like there's a lot going on for mona here a lot of emotions and she kind of gives hannah a once over and then she kisses her on the cheek and i feel like this kiss is framed not like a little quick peck on the cheek like it's there's we get kind of a zoom in there's kind of a linger i don't know i feel like i feel like there's there's some intention behind this kiss um and and uh Mona walks away. Lucas is lingering around. Hannah asks him, you're not going to be mad at me forever, are you? To which he replies, probably. And to which I reply, oh, fuck off, Lucas. <laughs> to which I reply, throw all the men away, <laughs> Hannah. All of them. Um, oh my gosh. I love this whole scene with Mona. It's so great. Um, as they're walking down the hall and Mona is encouraging her to get over Caleb, uh, I love how Mona is just saying, you know, Hannah deserves better. Not to mention any names or anything, but better. <laughs> just, just better. Hannah could do better in capital letters. Um, and I also love that after Mona kisses Hannah just so sweetly on the cheek, and, and I agree with you, it's it's a lingering shot. I don't think that's just like us being wishful, you know, Vandermeer and people. I think it does linger a little bit. Um, and then Mona, she says, sorry, before she walks away. Mm. And I love, like, there is so much going on for Mona here. Like, sorry, she can't tell Hannah how she actually feels. Sorry for being A. Sorry that Caleb wasn't worthy of a blonde goddess like Hannah Kins. Like, I just want to scream for all of the things that this sorry means. Like, if we had, like, a siren sound for, like, you know, <laughs> like, the gay alarm, I would just, I would be pushing it for this scene because there's just so, so much happening. And I, I also, I love that it's a kiss on the cheek because it's, like, it, it's this sign, like, in the scene of affection but it's also like, you know, symbolic of betrayal, you know, like it's like a Judas kiss where she's like kissing her on the cheek and, and knowing that she's the person who's been like, you know, 
wrecking all this havoc onto onto Hannah's life. So oh, there's so much going on. It's really PLL at its best. It's queer. It has like a hundred different meanings and I love them all. Totally agree. I, and I also think it's so interesting that Lucas comes back into play in this episode because as we've talked about before, and I'm sure we'll talk about again, Lucas really sort of operates in this space where he's he's sort of able to verbalize all of the things that Mona feels by virtue of him being male and not being a, and I just think it's so interesting. He's literally like basically Mona's shadow in this scene. And in the later scene, he's standing right behind her. He's looking at Hannah the way that Mona is like wanting to look at Hannah too, but can't or does, but in her own Mona way, like it's so, so interesting. It's almost like, like, I feel like you could almost have an interpretation of this episode that Lucas is just like a figment of Mona's imagination the whole time. Um, Just like verbalizing all of these things that she thinks and feels. Cause I also think, and we'll get into this, but I also think that later when Lucas goes and, and retrieves Caleb, there is this way in which that's sort of what a weird twist, a weird part of Mona wants to do too, even though she hates Caleb, because as much as she hates Caleb, she also wants Hannah to be happy. And it's oh God. so complicated. And I have more to say later, but my God. Uh, yes, yes. We'll, we'll pack that up for later. But I will say here that Lucas's um, anger towards Mona and Lucas's like, fury that he seems to feel towards Mona in this episode which um the first time I watched it I was like well I mean that's kind of because he just has like a disdain for women uh, at, at this point in his character um but also I think that a lot of it is coming from the fact that Lucas's um Lucas's rejection was kicked off by when he snuck into the hospital room and kissed Hannah while she was half asleep. And then she was like, no, that's actually not what I want at all. And then he's standing there in the hallway and he sees Mona kissing Hannah. And I feel like the, the white hot incel fury just builds in him in that moment. And that that is why he is like so hostile to Mona as the episode goes on. Totally, totally. I mean, I've always kind of felt like Lucas, maybe more than just about anybody, knows about Mona's feelings for Hannah um, in this weird way. I also think that Caleb does, too. Um, I also think that everybody does. But uh, <laughs> but I think that Lucas, I think that Lucas feels like in that same way where it's like, you know, kind of in that same way where like queer people can kind of pick up on that between one another i feel like lucas can pick up the the mona attraction on the hannah attraction on mona yeah yeah i would definitely definitely say so uh okay so spencer at this moment comes over and as the liars clock jenna moving ominously down the hallway uh they get into formation and follow her into the music room this is so tense it is like high noon Once again, they assemble behind her and Jenna has to sense their presence and ask who's there. Spencer identifies herself. And when Jenna says who else, either because she can smell all of them or because she knows the liars normally travel in a pack, Spencer identifies Aria, Emily, and Hannah. They tell her they have what she hired Caleb to find. They've seen it. Jenna looks legitimately upset and uncomfortable. She asks what they want. They want the truth. 
Hannah says. Can she handle that? Jenna tells them that Allison visited her in the hospital the day before she went missing. She was on her way back from Georgia and she just found the videos and could not wait to play them for Jenna. Flashback to a nice shot of Allison reflected in Jenna's sunglasses. She plays the video and Jenna seems horror struck. Allison says the guy she likes likes to make movies. She thought they were just of her. Turns out the boy next door likes to film all the girls next door. And it is so interesting to me that Ian is depicted as clearly a creep in the show. He takes videos of the liars without their knowledge or consent. He menaces Spencer. He lies to everyone. He has inappropriate relationships with two underage girls. And this is an exact copy of Prezra Fitz's resume. The entire Prezria relationship story is like if we were seeing Ian and Melissa's relationship from Melissa's perspective. But I guess it only works if Melissa was underage in that scenario. But my point is that it is incredible that Ian is the villain and Prezra is a romantic lead when their characters are so extremely similar. Mm -hmm. Ah. But anyway, in the flashback, Allison blackmails Jenna by saying she'll keep the tape safe if Jenna will keep their secret. And if Jenna ever comes back to Rosewood, Allison will bury her. Uh, Also kind of Interesting to note that Jenna only takes one portion of that threat seriously, since she's obviously back in Rosewood the very next night. (laughs) Also, uh, you know, barely worth noting, but this is kind of wonky in terms of Allison's timeline for that night, because I thought we were supposed to understand that she threatened Jenna earlier in the day on Labor Day, like in the afternoon of the day that she disappeared. But whatever, that timeline like bends space all the time. So we'll just we'll just let that one go. Um, But Jenna tells the liars that she's given them everything they asked for. What are they going to give her? Uh, Spencer, whose voice is just dripping with contempt, says they'll make sure the video stays in a safe place. This is basically giving Jenna nothing. I mean, I guess while the video was out there and she didn't know who had it, there was a risk of it being found by a stranger. But now it is absolutely and unquestionably in the hands of her enemies. (laughs) Jenna just kind of nods and starts to walk out. As she reaches the door, she says, we all make mistakes. Remember, I'm still paying for yours. And so this is like, this is the reckoning with Jenna. The balance of power between them is shifted and it is going to force Jenna to reach for a different tool in her arsenal. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting scene. I mean, Jenna has just been this like looming, you know, shadow over this entire season. The liars have been so scared of her and here they are confronting her um, and they're really not showing any fear for the first time. I think that um, PLL is a show full of really complicated characters and in particular, really complicated female characters. But I have to say, I think Jenna Marshall might be at the top of the list. Uh, She is she is such a paradox she's a victim and a perpetrator an abuser and somebody who has been deeply wounded um much like Ali, mona and charlotte who i feel like share some of those same characteristics to varying degrees um i think that there it feels to me i mean you could debate a lot about jenna in some ways i feel like um I don't know. I don't know how much, if she's deserving of sympathy. I don't know if she, um, I don't know what she deserves. And I think that it's true that the liars never own up to what they did to her and never 
pay for their mistake. Like she says, she's the one who pays for it. I also think that Jenna never really pays for her mistake, mistake in quotes of uh, abusing Toby. So it's, it's a comp it's complicated. It's super, super complicated. It is really complicated. And I was actually thinking about this. Um, I was thinking about this in terms of the way that the episode ends and in terms of what we know about how the Rosewood police operate. I think that real justice doesn't exist in the system as it's been set up in Rosewood. Like it is not realistic in, in the PLL world to think that Jenna would be held accountable for coercing Toby into a sexual relationship uh, in the same way that it is not realistic to think that if Ian killed Allison or if Ian uh, was involved with two underage girls or, or if Prezra was that any of them are going to see any kind of uh, legal justice uh, come down upon them. So in that way, Rosewood is really with everything that's happening with a, with everything that's happening with the liars, it's like the wild West. The only kind of justice that exists is vengeance. The only way someone is going to pay for their crimes is if they get thrown off a bell tower or if they get, you know, taken out, uh, you know, on a on a train. Uh, these are the kind of things. So I feel like what they've actually done is that by by giving Jenna this dark secret, uh, which is something that is like indisputably awful that she's done, they are lessening the guilt of the liars. What the liars did to her becomes this wild west justice uh, that that they enacted against Jenna. I would agree. And I think it's unfortunate that Toby sort of just ends up being a pawn in all of that. I mean, Toby, we talked about this before, but Toby as a character is somebody who by the end of the series has been, um, you know, coerced into sexual relationships with two different women. Uh, lest we forget the Alex Drake trickery of season seven, as much as we might want to. Um, and he never, that, he never that never gets to be really acknowledged unless it's convenient and basically unless the liars want to use that information or make a snarky comment about it to jenna toby doesn't really get to process or verbalize his experience as a victim of assault yeah that's definitely that's definitely true um after the the come to Jesus talk with Jenna, the liars debrief. Uh, they think that what Jenna did was sick. Arya says that she could have made up that whole story, but Spencer believes her, saying that the video was Allison's insurance policy and she cashed it in the day she got it, which means she must have been with Ian when she found it. Spencer comments on how happy Allie was when she came home from the trip and theorizes that it's uh, because for her the Jenna thing was over. Hannah says, nice of her to share the safety net with us. Emily mentions Allie saying, wait for it, girls, wait for it when she got back and suggests this is what they were supposed to be waiting for. Aria says they were all wondering why Jenna came back for Allie's funeral, but it was obviously now because she could. Allie was the one who got buried. Ooh, so I feel like I just like had to power through a bunch of this liar Jenna bathroom confrontation and I, I will be very happy to let you take us yes. through the entire uh, cafeteria burner phone Ian 
situation. <laughs> totally. Yes. Hats off to you. You just, that was a lot of, that was a lot of exposition to get through and you, and you, and you did it very well. Um, I do still love that Aria, because Aria makes, the, her comment is, is that Jenna could have written that whole story. And I love that Aria still hates Jenna for writing a story that Ezra praised. <laughs> She's never going to let that one go. Um, so in the lunchroom, the liars are talking. Um, they are talking about the fact that Emily might be moving away. Aria offers to ask her dad for access to the guest room. And Hannah very sweetly, yes. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I heard that. And I was like, oh, my God. Ashley Marin is so the only other parent Pam would trust to take Emily in. Like we know what she thinks of the Montgomerys, you know, their, their parenting style that encourages, you know, the goth lifestyle and terrible boundaries. And like the Hastings are absent more than they're present due to their busy law practices and constant rounds of infidelity and secrets. So, like yeah. I heard Aria make that offer and I was just like, Oh God, I love that Ashley is actually the only one that Pam would entrust with her daughter. Right. Well, one of my thoughts, too, is like, I would not want to be the teen girl living in Byron Montgomery's house. Like, <laughs> he is totally like the dad that would just make all of the friends feel really uncomfortable. Um, and Hannah very sweetly says, we lost each other for a year. I can't imagine not. But before she can really finish that thought, Spencer arrives. There's no time for emotional processing because Spencer has a plan. She's brought with her a prepaid cell phone. She has uh, her, her new plan, which is that they're going to uh, basically pretend to be blackmailing Ian about the videos for money, which will surely throw him off the scent because why would the liars want money? Spencer is really enjoying all of this espionage. She asks uh, Hannah if she watches CNN, which is pretty funny. And they glance over at Ian, who is with the nondescript Rosewood jocks. Uh, Spencer sends the first message somewhat with, with a certain amount of hesitation. And they kind of watch Ian's reaction. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting here. I feel like we get to see something that we don't get to see in later seasons which is that the liars have made a decision that somebody is a or bad in this case so that somebody is allison's killer and they basically act on that suspicion and then they get to have emotions about that they're all they talk about feeling kind of numb they say that it's something different to actually feel like it's confirmed hannah makes a comment about um feeling better knowing what ian is likely to face in prison and we're actually sitting with the emotional ramifications of a liar revelation, which adds a lot more weight to the story and is something that I think we're really missing in the later seasons when it's just like, this person's A, no, this person's A, no, this person's A, and we don't actually get to sit with what that might mean for some of the other characters. Um, Ian wants to know what they want, and Hannah takes over. She types back a message regarding um, the payment and the meeting spot for that evening. Uh, and yes, oh, I was just gonna say before, yes. before the next thing happens, I, um, I think that this really is not a bad plan as liar plans yeah. go. Um, it's, it's pretty solid. I, I think their general idea was that, you know, they would text him from this burner phone and he would take the money to the park and they would make a video of it. And then they would take the flash drive and the burner phone and the video, the bag of money. They would take all of this to the police and then boom, you know, he's trapped. He's a, it's not a bad plan. 
I do think that, you know, after Spencer went on and on about the untraceable nature of the cell phone, they may have made a tactical error by all like swiveling around to keep their eyes on him when he gets the text message. I feel like they maybe could have they maybe could have tried for a little more subtlety there. But as liar plans go, this one is fairly solid. Yes, I feel like later in the episode, maybe Spencer could have turned the phone off or like, turned it to silence, perhaps. I mean, there are definitely opportunities for improvement on the plan as, as it goes along. But but yeah, I mean, compared to like, <laughs> compared to some of the other somewhat, I'll, I'll describe them as harebrained schemes that they get into as, as the show goes on, um, I feel like this is, you know, this is definitely one of their more effective thought out uh you know traps that they try to set totally i think it works um should i take us into the rest of this scene oh, <laughs> I, yeah yeah this is like your reward for making it through the first part so um mona arrives at the lunch table she asks if this is the let's love on hannah lunch committee it looks like she's brought some froyo for hannah and she asks if hannah is feeling better sweetie uh, but, you know, Mona is like, she's like a bad smell. Like, she arrives in town and the other liars cannot get out of there fast enough. I don't know why they're still so dismissive. I think partially because they're a bit distracted. But no sooner has Mona sat down at the other, at the table, than all of the liars disperse. Uh, Mona kind of adorably counts down and then there were four and then there was one, there were two, and then there was Mona, which is kind of funny, unintentional perfectionist foreshadowing. Uh, and as Mona walks away, she sees that Hannah has left her phone. Caleb calls and Mona answers the phone, lying about having given Hannah the letter and Hannah having thrown it in the trash. She says that Caleb should forget Hannah's number because Hannah has forgotten his. And what I love about this so much is that Mona, in, in real time, when she got the letter, had the reaction that she wanted Hannah to have. She tore up the letter. She threw it in the trash. She poured her drink all over it. She didn't want to give it a second thought. And so it's like, once again, Hannah is both her doll and like this weird part of her own identity that's, that she's kind of like putting her own stuff on and taking stuff from. I just think it's so great. Um, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Um, my comment about how the liars just like dashed out of there, they actually leave Mona alone at the table surrounded by their discarded lunch trays, which none of them even bothered to bust. So rude. So rude. Yeah, they, they're pretty awful where Mona is concerned. Um, Lucas overhears this phone call and calls Mona out on it. He gets very high and mighty. Um, he starts talking about how, or Mona says to him, you think we should let him do, th do that to her again, meaning um, hurt Hannah. Lucas is quick to say that they are not a we. He says that he, um, he always thought that Mona's bad person uh, attitude was just an act. And Mona apologizes and offers to set Lucas up with Hannah because of course she would prefer Hannah to start dating someone who poses no romantic threat to Mona due to hannah's lack of interest interesting tactic mona 
It is. And I, I really like the moment where Lucas, uh, like Mona has just made some crack, like she'll take him from her me to her man. And uh, Lucas says she's not into him like that. And Mona's response is not yet. Like Mona firmly believes that she can like create the right set of circumstances to like cause a Hannah Lucas relationship to come into being, which that in itself is really interesting. I think you're right about why Mona is offering to help Lucas. Um, but I think it's an interesting question of why is Lucas turning her down? Uh, is it because he's an incel who has so much contempt for women? Um, but I think it's partly that, but I also think it's, he is this nice guy who believes that loving him is basically a test that Hannah has to pass on her own. Like he's going to act as angry as he wants and as pissy as he wants. And he is going to behave uh, in as awful a way as he can. And Hannah, the, the test is that she has to see through it and love him anyway. Like that's, that's kind of what he's going for. And it is, it's really disgusting. <laughs> Right, she has to like pull the glasses off of him and and you know mm-hmm. tell him that he's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think that that's true. I also do think that there is this way in which um, Lucas knows that Mona might have ulterior motives here because I mean I think I think it's clear that Mo- that Mona has ulterior motives, but I also think that Lucas kind of um, sees through Mona a little bit. And so, uh, yeah, I think that 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 might be part of the reason here. But I, I think you're totally right that he's um, he, he wants he wants Hannah to be the one to, to proclaim her love all on her own. Well, well, and I think there's a there's a parallel, a weird parallel between what's going on with Prezra Fitz and what's going on with Lucas. Like Prezra thinks like, oh, great, I have this job at Hollis, everything is going to be hunky-dory for me now, not really realizing that if Byron Montgomery got him that job, Byron is also probably powerful enough to take it away from him. If Lucas allows Mona to give him this relationship with Hannah, that also gives Mona the power to take that relationship away from him. So I think mm-hmm. that there's like a parallel that's going on there. And I also think that Mona, like one of the things she says to him when they're talking is, that she did this because Caleb really hurt Hannah. You know, does Lucas think that they should just let Caleb do that again? And although Lucas is like really mean and snippy about this, I actually think that when he goes and retrieves Caleb later in this episode, he's operating on a principle that Mona just described. I think Lucas brings Caleb back under the presumption that Caleb will hurt Hannah again. And then who is going to be standing right there the nice guy who just wanted hannah to be happy lucas is gonna be like right there to swoop in and comfort her i think that that is what he's doing i don't think he's done anything to make us assume that he has good motives at this time so that's that's kind of my take i think that lucas takes mona's idea and twists it a little bit to his own advantage totally totally and i also think like you know, whatever his motives are, it's really creepy that he gets as involved in this as he does. Like, it's kind of weird that he goes and picks Caleb up. I mean, granted, like, Mona's gotten herself very involved in all of this, too. 
But as we've talked about before, you know, Mona can pretty much do anything and we'll be okay with it. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying Byron Montgomery might not be the only man in town who's constantly on the hunt for a thruple. (laughs) Yep. Agreed. (laughs) We move to Jenna, who is on a bed where her phone rings. Uh, She says they found the video and they've seen it. Uh, We then cut to Ian in a car, although... I think we're meant to think that this is who Jenna is supposed to be talking to, but I don't really think it is. Uh, Ian is saying, don't worry. He'll take care of it and he'll be there soon. I think this is actually Ian talking to Melissa about Mm -hmm. the christening. Uh, Then we see him drive off in a hulking, dark-colored SUV. Yes. Yeah, I think that too. I also, I mean, I, I do think that it's interesting to imagine that Melissa was somehow in on this final Ian Spencer showdown. Um, which I guess, I guess we ultimately learned that she wasn't right. Correct. Um, but I, I still, I still think it's, I still think it's kind of, it's kind of fun to imagine Ian and Melissa as like the Rosewood, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, although I also do like Ian being just a total like creep all on his own. Um, back uh, on, back on the, the the street where Emily and everyone else lives. Garrett accosts Emily and insists that he's on their side. He says that he knows Spencer wouldn't have hurt Allison, and he gives Emily his number. Um, He says, I'm glad I ran into you as if it was just happenstance. Um, And then he invites her over to his family's home to watch Dancing with the Stars, which I don't know if he's angling for another teen girl romance here, but I kind of like the idea that Garrett is a, is such a bad detective that he doesn't even know Emily is gay. He's just like, oh, that cute Fields girl. Let's like roll the dice and see what happens there. Yeah, this is that's that's pretty amazing. I feel like uh, him inviting her to go watch Dancing with the Stars with his parents is very much like Ian constantly asking people to come out to the barn with him. Um, neither of neither of those is a particularly good line, but I guess they feel like if if the if the young underage girls are inexperienced enough, maybe they'll just swoon for it anyway. Um, also, everything Garrett is saying there is a lie because he's actually not on his way to his parents' house. He's on his way to Emily's neighbor, uh, Jenna's home. So we'll, we'll see that later. Um, I love the idea of what if Emily had said yes and then he had to like take her to his parents' house and get them to watch Dancing with the Stars as, uh, <laughs> as, as a cover. But uh, Hannah is oh i'm sorry did you oh no i was just gonna say or he takes her to jenna's house and gets that trouble going <laughs> god the, uh, the rosewood men are just irredeemable in my opinion uh, um but hannah is sitting on the front steps of emily's house she didn't want to be alone um judging by the long brown coat that she's wearing she could always be a resistance fighter on firefly but before serenity can land and have her join the crew emily walks up Emily sits down next to her and gives Hannah her phone, uh, which was returned to Emily by Lucas in the parking lot at school. Hannah and Emily have a really nice conversation in which Emily complains that Texas is the beauty queen capital of America. And Hannah points out that could be a good thing if that's your type. Emily says it's not. And Hannah very adorably responds, so you have a type? (laughs) note blondes who make bracelets hannah don't you listen to our podcast braid some twine together and it could be you emily gives her a look 
Hannah giggles and asks Emily to promise that y'all won't come back with big hair. Her Southern accent is actually better than Spencer's. So I have to assume that season 15A would have introduced us to Hannah's <laughs> wacky identical French cousin, Antoinette Dupree, who would have learned about Hannah, <laughs> would have learned about Hannah after passing by Mona's petite boutique and entering une liaison dangereuse. Ahem. <laughs> Oh my God. Emily. <laughs> Emily promises not to get big hair and tells Hannah she's glad she's here. She doesn't want to be alone either. Hannah puts her arm through Emily's and cuddles against her shoulder. And Hannah actually looks so much like Allison in this scene. And there are just such shippy vibes here that at least one Emerson Supercut fan video includes this as an Emerson scene. <laughs> oh my god what was that southern name again <laughs> Antoinette Dupree <laughs> oh man I love that I will be shipping Antoinette Dupree and Alex Drake <laughs> like my life depends on it um, <laughs> they can both end up in Mona's bunker <laughs> um <laughs> Speaking of throuples. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Got way off track there. Um, yes, this is like such, this is such a great scene. This is one of my all-time favorite Hannah and Emily scenes. I love that it's both like, it's so, it's both friendshipy and you could look at it as romance shippy. I gotta believe that when Hannah asked about Emily's type, she had the fact that she looks very much like Allison in mind. Um, I just love that, you know, Emily is glad Hannah is there. She doesn't want to be alone either. I feel like Ashley Benson and Shay Mitchell's real life friendship really comes through in this moment. Um, and I also really like it, it, earlier in this scene, um, Pam, uh, Hannah comments that Pam is packing boxes and Emily responds, maybe we should pack her up to which Hannah asks if things are better between them. And Emily says that they are, but I really like how, you know, much like that earlier scene, we see that it's not a straight line. It's not that, you know, Pam just sort of woke up one day and is cool with it and everything is fine between the two of them. Things are still kind of rocky there. And uh, we get to, we'll get to see them, Pam and, and Emily kind of work on rebuilding their relationship into something ultimately more honest. Agree. Agree. Um, on to a scene with significantly less chemistry. Spencer and Toby are making eyes at one another. Um, you know this, but I will share this for our listeners. We were texting during this episode while I was watching it, and you sent the text, heteronormativity is the real villain of this piece, and it came in just as this scene started, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Um, Spencer is distracted and concerned as she looks at Toby, who um is kind of making sure that this is actually what she wants i i kind of feel like there's an interpretation that spencer is feeling a little bit both more uncomfortable and protective around toby since seeing that video earlier in the episode um i even feel like she's a little bit more restrained with him physically until he kind of initiates contact with her um and toby asks if spencer wants to talk about what might happen tonight she says that she's kind of talked out and my question is, what exactly does Toby know at this point? 
I'm not sure. I know that his job is to keep Jenna occupied tonight, I guess, so that uh, Jenna won't be able to interfere with the plan that Spencer and her friends have initiated. I think that what Toby knows, I don't think he knows necessarily about A, but I think that he knows that Spencer believes Ian killed Allison and has been framing Spencer and that this is their attempt to, uh, you know, the attempt to correct that. Um, my notes about this scene were mainly about the fact that Spencer is sitting in that red chair by the window. I love that red chair in Spencer's room. I think I would probably sit in it all the time, except that I also really like looking at it. Um, Toby sitting in the chair, it's kind of a downer, um, but I, I guess like Spencer enjoys looking at him. So it's fine. I guess so. And and I do actually have to say, um, I'll give Toby some points here. He kind of sets them up by the window with quite a flourish he like opens up the window and turns the chair around and and invites Spencer to come over and sit with him and I do feel like that's what Spencer needs in this moment she doesn't really want to process clearly she's just kind of needs some comfort she probably could use a little bit of fresh air and this is just kind of a nice a nice little thing for him to do yeah, I have um, I, I have a, a fic that I've worked on but have not finished yet where someone asks Spencer um, what she saw in Toby that she was with him for so long. And Spencer responds, the solid thereness of him. And I feel mm-hmm. like this scene demonstrates what I, what I mean by that, like the solid thereness of Toby. Totally, totally, absolutely. Um yeah do you want to take us to this jenna snow globe scene oh yeah we go to one of these creeptastically strange is jenna really blind scenes where she is staring at a snow globe uh that she cannot see and talking about how allison continues to taunt them from beyond the grave she tells the person she's speaking with that if the video comes out they could both lose everything uh, the camera turns to reveal it is Garrett Reynolds, Officer Smiley, in Jenna's uh, snow globe office bedchamber. Uh, he promises that he won't let that happen. So presumably it was Garrett that she was on the phone with before. Uh, at any rate, Garrett takes off Jenna's sunglasses and kisses her in the streaming sunlight from her snow globe window. <sighs> yeah, you know... I think that the Garrett stuff, I don't know if it was an actor situation or a director situation or a writer situation. I feel like Garrett is just, is pretty bland and could be a really interesting, like punchy character. And, you know, I think especially if he and Jenna had like really great chemistry, that would help too. Um, But I just feel like he gets more interesting, I think, as the show goes on. But in this early season, he's, he's not terribly dynamic. Though he is kind of an interesting counterpoint to Wilden, who's so, like, obviously on the offensive the whole time, um, in that he seems somewhat harmless. Yeah, he's also, uh, he's very gray in this scene, like, (laughs) in in the lighting of it. He's like, you look at him and you're like, man, is is he okay? Is he like a zombie or a ghost? Like, what? (laughs) What exactly is going on with him? Um, He doesn't, he doesn't look well, I feel. Um, But... Would you mind terribly if I took us to the faculty mixer, even though I just talked about the snow globes? Oh, Oh, go for it. So much happens in this episode. We are now off to the faculty mixer, which 
I'd almost forgotten about in the midst of everything else going on. Uh, there are long white candlesticks and food spread out and enough people that this should probably have been held in an event space at the college. Um, Aria is replenishing the buffet when she catches sight of Prezra, who makes sex eyes at her over the top of his drinking glass. People he is talking to apparently don't see fit to comment on the newest faculty member's penchant for shooting, you know, lascivious glances at high school girls. Uh, just then, a bell tolls, a doorbell. Aria goes to answer it, and who should be standing there but Jackie Molina? For real, Byron should be answering the door, or they should have a sign on it that says, Hollis Faculty Mixer, come in, but they don't. So Arya stands there just staring weirdly at this woman who is clearly now worried that she's either in the wrong place or that the faculty mixer is a ruse to lure her to the home of this teenage serial killer because that is basically the look that Arya is bestowing on her. Arya's opening line after Jackie has provided her name and asked if this is the Montgomery house is the very charming welcome. What are you doing here? <laughs> Jackie is like, I teach at Hollis. This is the faculty mixer, right? Aria does not welcome her in. She just leaves her standing there on the doorstep as she excuses herself and runs back into the party. Have fun with the rest of the mixer, Jackie. Presra sees Aria fleeing through the interior of the house, having abandoned all hostess duties in order to have a fit. And as he looks to the doorway, he sees Jackie standing there like a woman he used to date in Italy, standing on a doorstep. Oh, I bet Aria really wishes she had a paper bag mask on for this moment. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. Enter Jackie Molina. Um Back at Spencer's, she has fallen asleep on Toby. She wakes up to the sound of her phone chiming. When she checks it, she sees that Melissa needs a ride because Ian never showed. Um, Toby talks about how he's going to keep Jenna busy, which, oh God, how is Toby going to keep Jenna busy? I'm very very worried about Toby, guys. Um, And Spencer has her first safe place to land mention as she talks about how she never felt like she had a safe place to land and now she feels like she does so it's very important to her to keep toby safe to which i reply then probably don't make him spend the evening with his abuser um but toby says if you need anything i'll be there for you they kiss and it kind of feels like this like gender reversal as wifey toby is sure spencer he'll be there for her as she puts on her armor to go off to battle or you know time with her sister which is basically one and the same Yes, my note on that scene was that I think Spencer may have fallen asleep due to the heteronormativity of her plot line. <laughs> she just got so bored and snoozed right off. <laughs> but um, back at the most traumatic faculty mixer this town has ever seen, is Meredith there? <laughs> Presra has super casually snuck away uh, to meet Aria in her room where she is digging furiously through her purse probably looking for a notebook to angry journal in (laughs) but they have a somewhat loud fight which maybe can't be heard over the clinking of wine glasses and nomming of cheese downstairs Uh, but aria is furious did it not occur to presra that she would be here tonight presra says it did not he has not seen her since last summer and she was just a ta then weasel he clearly knew that she worked at hollis and uh 
though Arya accuses him of still having feelings for Jackie, thinking it is the only reason that he would keep this from her. Uh, and she accuses him of lying by omission. She stalks out in high dudgeon, and her parting shot is that until tonight, Prezra was the only guy who had never lied to her. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> He's so honest. His honest and upright character, which only requires both of them to lie to everyone else constantly. <laughs> Plus, I love the idea about how the lie works. Like, you know, he's not lying to her right now because he never said that he wasn't spying on her and all of her friends in order to write a true crime book. He had no idea that she would want that information. <laughs> yes, he didn't think it was pertinent in the least. <laughs> oh, man. Over at the Marin house, Hannah is sitting sadly on her stairs while Brandy Carlisle sings mournfully. Um, she is looking at the contacts in her phone. Interestingly, you know, Mona made that comment about Hannah having deleted Caleb's number. And here Hannah is debating actually deleting Caleb's number. I really like the visual symmetry of the way this, that stairs already have been used, these Marin House stairs in the Caleb and Hannah relationship. They initially bonded on the stairs when Hannah and Arya were fighting. Ashley and Hannah fought about Caleb on the stairs the night after the campout. Um, Hannah and Caleb kissed on the stairs um, once they kind of came out about their relationship to Ashley. And now Hannah deletes Caleb's number on the stairs and cries alone in her big empty house. But wait, Caleb is not gone. Caleb is in the passenger seat of a car as Lucas drives him back to Rosewood. When Caleb asks why Lucas is doing this, Luca re Lucas replies that Hannah deserves to be happy. Yes. First of all, this is a very queer episode for Hannah. Uh, Mona kissed her. She had that little cuddle with Emily while talking about who is Emily's type. And now she's crying to Brandy Carlisle. I mean, she is really, she's, she's really stepping it up here. Um, also, I feel like where, how far did Caleb get on the bus that Lucas is able to retrieve him basically just after school? He was like heading to Arizona, but it seems like Bastardville is always closer than you think. <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah, it was kind of a startling shot of Caleb's face. I had forgotten that, that about that scene um, the first time I rewatched this episode. And it's like, oh, whoa, there's Caleb. We're not deleting his number. Not so fast. <laughs> Well, you know, there are always so many times when, like, the boyfriend leaves, like, when there's a dramatic, you know, one of the liar's boyfriends goes away, and normally they don't stay away for super long. In this case, Caleb stayed away for, like, less than an episode, so it's a very, a very quick turnaround. Very true. Very true. Uh, over in Spencer's car, Melissa is freaking out. Uh, she spoke with Ian earlier, and he was dealing with the contractor, then heading straight for the church. Something is wrong. She can feel it. Uh, also, she's left her phone at the church. Spencer tells her to calm down. This can't be good for the baby. Melissa, wow, spoken like a sister who actually cares. Spencer insists that she does care, and Melissa wishes she could believe it. Spencer asks if Melissa wants her to turn around and head back to the church. Melissa does. Just then, we see a flash of headlights and a hulking, dark-colored SUV of the same exact kind Ian was driving earlier plows into them. Ugh, this is the second car accident of the season, uh, the first being in the mid-season finale, 
when Hannah got run over by Mona. Uh, now we have Ian, presumably, plowing into Spencer and Melissa's car. Later, of course, we will have Toby's truck get into uh, this exact same kind of accident when he breaks his leg after going to the police academy. And Hannah is going to kill Archer with Beamer. Uh, Toby is going to wreck against the uh, tree leading to Yvonne's demise while trying to avoid a deer. Plus, there's that car that crashes into Emily's house. Also, Charlotte engineers the accident with the prison transport in order to kidnap the liars. So the moral of the story is that PLL loves a good car accident. Wow, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You, you named more than I remembered. That's true. Yes. And it's, and it's such a season finale thing, too, isn't it? It's like the season finale yes. car crash. Yes. Uh, yeah. In both of, you know, the mid-season finale and the final episode of this season, we get a car crash. It's, it's really a, a patented winner for them. It is. Um, basically, the rest of the episode is a bunch of really quick scenes. So I guess maybe we'll just kind of double up and see how we get through recapping it. Yes. Um, we go to the park where the liars are hanging out, um, waiting for Spencer and waiting for Ian to arrive. I like that they're finally wising up to the idea that one of them not showing up probably means that something is wrong. Arya says that if Spencer doesn't show up in the next 10 minutes, she's going to call the police. Um, then over at the hospital, Veronica arrives. Spencer is very tearful as Veronica hugs her. Melissa is okay but the baby is being monitored for trauma. And then back at the park, the liars get a text from A saying, buckle up, bitches. Nothing is as it seems. Um, they ask, they, they, Emily ponders whether A knows they're there. And Hannah wisely points out that A knows everything. Oh my gosh. Um, first of all, the liars are at the park. In Aria's message, she says that it is 7.30 p.m. and they're worried about Spencer, which... The liars are really early. I mean, they told Ian to be there at nine and they are there a good 90 minutes ahead of him. I, I mean, the early bird gets the heteropatriarchal worm, but wow. Um, also, I like how they're at the park and they're like not even hiding. They're hanging out at a picnic table having some late night thermos coffee. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like, and I don't know, I feel like time management is a little questionable there. I do like in the scene with Spencer and Veronica in the hospital, um, you know, Spencer's face just crumbling when she says that the car came out of nowhere and Veronica like holding her tight and saying it wasn't her fault. Um, I think that, you know, there are some nice moments in this season of Veronica comforting Spencer. And that's definitely one of them. Um, once we, once we go out on that text message um, at the hospital, Spencer tells her mom she's going to go head back to the church to look for Ian uh, or Melissa's, you know, she's looking for Ian who might be there or she's going to find Melissa's phone. It's only a few blocks. She can walk. Uh, Veronica tells Spencer that Melissa knows she loves her, which is nice. Um, whether or not Melissa agrees with it, Veronica says she does. So that's, that's good. Um, a policeman approaches and returns Spencer's purse to her after it was recovered from the scene of the accident. Spencer pulls out her phone and sees multiple messages from Aria. Uh, back in the woods, a car pulls up and the liars announce he's here. Just as Aria gets the call from Spencer uh, telling her about the accident. Uh, she tells Spencer to stay with Melissa. They're safe. The liars thank the new arrival for coming. Garrett smiles sinisterly as he says he's glad they called. 
Officer Smiley ominously scouts the terrain with his flashlight. We get a long look at his gun in the holster as he asks the liars, so no one knows you're here but me, right? Hannah lies and says she left a note for her mom in case anything happens. Smart and Mona-ish move. Garrett says, well, this is the only way in, so if Ian shows, I'll see him coming. LOL, this is a park. Can't literally anyone come in at any angle through the woods, but okay. I mean, that does seem to be a very Rosewood PD tactical assessment. Uh, We see someone entering a car with a bag and putting the car into drive. We're meant to think it's Garrett getting into the cruiser or Ian, but it is not. Yeah, there are a lot of cars in this episode, particularly in these last like 10 minutes. Um, Spencer arrives at the super creepy church. I really don't, you know, I think probably most parents would not let their child go off somewhere alone after being in a car accident, but I suppose Veronica Hastings is not most parents. Um, we go, Spencer is, um, yeah, so Spencer goes to the church. We go back to the park where I I like the liars, like, they don't really have necessarily a reason to be creeped out by Garrett. I mean, they did invite him here, but they're just kind of, they just kind of are. Um, Hannah's intuition in particular is the best as she reveals, wait, this is the part where she reveals that she didn't actually leave a note for her mom. <laughs> yeah. They, like, I think Ari or someone is like, did you really leave a note? And Hannah says, yeah, it went, dear mommy. I went to the woods to trap a killer. <laughs> Which That line makes me laugh every single time I hear it. And then, like, there's an owl hooting, which makes me think that Mona and her nocturnal bird army are probably also (laughs) keeping tabs on the situation. They're just, like, circling overhead. Um, Spencer calls out for Reverend Ackard at the church. Um, I would really love to meet Reverend Ackard um, now that we've met Sean and his mother and Sean's mother. But nobody seems to be there. Um, Back in the woods, uh, a, a car pulls up. We don't really know, like, who Garrett thinks this is. We know that the liars think it's Ian. Does Garrett think it's Ian, or does Garrett think it's somebody else? I am not sure. I think, I mean, we know that Ian was in the NAT club, and we know that Garrett was in the NAT club. We know that Ian and Garrett were both looking for these videos. So I think it's kind of safe to presume that Garrett called Ian and told him that the liars had gotten in touch and like it's a plot between them like Garrett knows that this isn't going to be Ian who's about to appear but that's it's all kind of ambiguous um I really like that when the car pulls up Garrett says he wants the three of them out of sight um I feel like that would have been a good plan to have in place before the quarry was actually approaching but again he's really demonstrating the galaxy brain of the Rosewood PD uh and it also leads to that really nice shot of the liars hiding ineffectually in some bushes Yep. Um, Garrett pulls a gun on this mysterious white man who gets out of the car. And this is really kind of our first like random PLL patsy, which will become a theme, particularly in the later seasons when it's like random white dude shows up and has no real connection to anybody. Um, We go back to the church where a uh, the door flies closed And we have this really creepy shot where Spencer leans down to look for Melissa's phone. And when she stands up and turns around, Ian is standing right there. Yes. Yes. So creepy. Super creepy. Um, We go back to the woods where we learn that this random white dude is Logan Reed. He is a messenger and is terribly unhelpful. 
um, the liars call or Aria calls Spencer to say that they're going to meet her at the hospital. And I really love, you know, this is like such a trope in, in mysteries of like the person that was supposed to show up actually showed up to the other place and somebody else is in danger than we thought. But I think it's used really effectively here. Um, there, there's a real sense of urgency as we go into these last like 10 or so minutes of the episode. Oh, oh my gosh. There really, really is. Especially like, I mean, I feel like, like, I have felt scared for Spencer in almost every scene that she's had with Ian, like all those scenes in the Hastings kitchen where they're alone together and he's sort of like lightly menacing. And I feel like all of that, like all of that has built up to the point that him being alone with her at the church, really like you're you're afraid on Spencer's behalf from the moment that he shows up here. Um, you know, Spencer tries to tell him that Melissa left her phone at the church. Everyone's been trying to contact him. Ian is like, I got the strangest text message today. And uh, he says, you know, the number was blocked, but he could reply to it, which he now does. And the phone in Spencer's bag pings. Oh, Spencer thought of everything but this. He now has her dead to rights. Uh, Ian chuckles and says that uh, asking for money, that was clever. Are her friends waiting for him? And Spencer tries to divert him. She tells him there's been an accident, but he knows. He got the messages. He's been waiting for Spencer to leave the hospital and says Melissa would want him to take care of this. She'll understand. Uh, Spencer asks if he's going to take care of her like he took care of Allison. Is this why he killed her? Because she had found his home movies. Spencer dangles the flash drive in front of him, then throws it because she's read The Art of War and wants him to go after the videos instead of her. It kind of works, but the back door of the church is locked, and so Spencer channels Nev Campbell in every Scream movie and runs upstairs in a closed space to escape her pursuer. Uh, the, the stairs lead all the way up to the bell tower, and Spencer tries to call Emily as she runs. Uh, she is getting to this like rickety looking elevator that I guess she was going to take back down. But when she gets the grates of the elevator open, Ian is right there. He grabs her uh, and the call to Emily goes through to the dashboard of Emily's haunted car, like right at the moment that Spencer drops her phone. So now the other liars are listening in horror to the sounds of Spencer being attacked. Um, Spencer says her mom knows she's here at the church and then Ian says she picked the perfect place for a suicide. Yes. Oh, man, it's super, super suspenseful. Um, I really love how this this basically leads into e Ian evil monologuing Spencer's, Spencer's motives for killing Allison. Um, and it's it's so creepy, but it's also so effective and so interesting. Like he's saying, you know, that Spencer couldn't handle the guilt he um he he talks about how she she hit her head and spencer even in this moment says allison died of suffocation oh spencer <laughs> you, even in a moment like this you have to be right um but that's a really interesting little reveal that possibly ian doesn't really know how allison died um i do have to say spencer being all roughed up because ian's like throwing her around um you know she wood is splintering off she's she's gonna get really roughed up and that would probably undercut this idea that she killed herself if she was all like bruised and had a couple of broken ribs um and ian oh what are you gonna say no i i don't agree because okay. the fall the the bruises and whatever oh, would probably 
be blamed on her falling from a height. That's true. If you That's true. off the, the bell tower, but I, I guess so. That's true. Um, and Spencer, there's a really interesting shot where they actually like make eye contact and Spencer is just pleading for her life. She says, if you love my sister, you won't do this. And he says, I'm doing it because I love her, which is such an interesting line. So this whole scene makes it seem like Ian, um, either he's saying this to say it, or he believes that Melissa wants Spencer dead. What do we make of this? Oh, there are so many interesting things going on here. I mean, I feel like um, I, I feel like when Ian is going through uh, this this idea that he has of of Spencer killing Allison, when he says like, "You didn't mean to hurt Allison, huh? It was an accident. You pushed her, and she fell. Uh, you know, she hit her head, and she just didn't get back up." And there's that moment when Spencer says is that what happened? And like Spencer is asking him if that's what he did to Allison, but she's also sort of asking, is that what happened? Did she kill Allison? Because she is not even a hundred percent sure. Even as she thinks that Ian did it, even as Ian is about to kill her, Spencer isn't sure. And the thing that we know for sure is we know that Melissa does at this point think Spencer killed Allison. That's what Melissa believes. She saw Spencer and Allison fighting. She saw Spencer having whatever it was, the shovel, the hockey, whatever fake murder weapon Spencer had at that time. Um, and Melissa then buried the body. So Melissa thinks Spencer did that. I think it's entirely possible that this whole mess is just a misunderstanding that Ian thinks that Melissa is about to have their baby and that her sister is an unhinged homicidal maniac that he has to like prevent from hurting anyone else. I think that that is a possible alternative interpretation when he says, I'm doing this because I love your sister, that that's what's going on. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, that ties into my theory at the end of the last episode that Ian was actually scared when he um, when he rescued Spencer from the funhouse. I suppose that there's a there's a thought here that if Ian is perhaps being menaced by A, that he might think that A is Spencer. Yeah, I think that that's also possibly true. Um, I forgot, though, that we were talking about that moment in the funhouse where he seems surprised to see Spencer and you theorize that he might think that he's meeting Allison. Um, it's also when he encounters someone who is later to revealed to be Allison on this night, he says, what are you doing here? So he's not like he's not surprised in the way that you might be if you saw someone come back from the dead, which is actually why. I, for a long time, thought that the person who we see at the end of this episode was Melissa rather than Allison. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that as well. Um, and I also, I mean, I, for a long time, thought that, that Ian, that Melissa had killed Spencer and that Ian was afraid that Spencer, no, sorry, that Melissa had killed Allison and that Ian was afraid that Spencer was going to uncover that. And that that mm. was why Ian felt that he had to kill Spencer to protect Melissa. Oh, yeah, man. Cross and double cross. Of course, no one actually killed Allison. It was Bethany Young who got murdered by like five different people. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong yellow tank top it, as, as it happens. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll get into, I think maybe at the end of this episode, we can have a little discussion about 
you know, if, if some of these revelations had actually been allowed to stick, what that might've meant moving forward. But um, yeah. yeah, Spencer. Uh, oh, sorry. No, I was just, I like the way that this really does feel like a life or death struggle. And I yes. like the additional element of the liars just having to like, listen in horror, like Hannah is dialing 911, but like they're hearing everything that's going on. They're hearing Spencer plead for her life. And I just feel like, in in this moment it really does seem like ian might kill spencer like he seems capable of it he seems evil enough um spencer really seems like she's in physical and emotional jeopardy ian has a whole plan he's written a suicide note on her computer which after spencer gives the suffocation line um ian has this this moment when he says like yeah, you know, the letter I wrote on your computer won't answer all the questions, but it'll answer enough. So, you know, he probably has, like, an interview with Marlene King on there. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, but, but yeah, uh, the way that he's just, he's, like, got her by her throat, and he's kind of dangling her off the, the edge of these, like, rickety platform boards at, at the top of the bell tower, and the liars are helpless. Like, they can do nothing but just kind of listen to this, uh, listen to this aghast and there's a difference there's a difference between moments when it really seems like somebody's going to get hurt whether it's because early seasons and we don't know that this is just the way the show operates or whether because Ian is enough of a villain that we really believe in his capacity to do this in a way that we don't really believe in for example Shauna's capacity to shoot all the liars when they're on that stage in the Fitzgerald theater Totally, totally. Yeah, this scene actually reminds me a lot of a scene from Criminal Minds of all shows, um, which is a, a very silly show that I've watched way too many episodes of. But um, there's this probably like one of the most upsetting episodes. One of the characters' wives is um, like alone with a serial killer. And the whole team is hearing on the phone, they're on like a conference call, basically, that she's about to be killed, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. And it's that the powerlessness in the face of like, knowing that this awful thing is about to happen, that is just so gut wrenching. And I think that that PLL really pulls that off here with the liars listening in. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And then also, like, there's this, um, like, with the with the way the stairs work here, and, and this, you know, epic struggle that's taking place like that all feels very vertigo uh in the way that we'll later you know when we talked about the the christmas episode there's this whole rear window thing going on with toby in the wheelchair and the camera um but this is like one of the early hitchcock tributes where um it's all kind of taking place on this vertigo-esque stairway right yeah well and it, yeah we're really using the bell tower in a way that we will that will become iconic for the show yeah, everyone's favorite architectural murder weapon in this town. Yes, yes. Never used better, though, than in this scene, I would say. Oh, oh, yeah. And, and like, you know, all of the life and death moments that PLL has, like Spencer had one just earlier in this episode when her car got T-boned. But here is a moment when we really feel like this, this could be it. This could be it for Spencer. Absolutely. Um, Spencer dangles. She is about to drop. Ian says, let go. But before, uh, before, before anything else can happen, a black hoodie appears. Ian says, what are you doing here? And the black hoodie just punches Ian down and keeps right on moving. Um, later, we will learn that this is Allison De Laurentiis, back from the dead. 
Spencer scrambles up to um, to the wooden platform and clutches on tightly. The bell starts clanging just as the liars arrive at the church, shouting for Spencer. I really think that this whole sequence, it's one of the best done, absolutely, because again, we're getting to, it's not just action, action, action. We get to kind of marinate in the emotion, in the trauma of this moment. We see Spencer sitting there clutching, um, clutching onto the platform, just shell-shocked. I mean, she, she has just faced death. And um, yeah, she, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty intense thing that she's just been through. Um, I also think that she would probably have like a broken rib or two. And after that car accident earlier, she should probably go to a chiropractor. But, you know, maybe she can deal with that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah and we also um in addition to like the emotional beats that we get of spencer just being like shaken and traumatized and in shock we also have the building dread of the liars as they run into the church they've been listening to this terrifying scene they don't know what exactly happened um they're running in not knowing what they're going to find they see spencer's purse spilled all over the floor and just say you know like oh god and they they keep running uh to try and find her they get up there and i i love everything that that happens like they surround spencer they're telling her it's okay they look down and as they look down the camera pans down so that we see what spencer is seeing and what the liars are seeing which is Ian just strung up like a uh, like a broken marionette. Like he's stuck on the bell ropes. There's like a noose kind of around his neck. He appears to be super dead. Um, the liars comfort Spencer, telling her she did what she had to do. Um, Spencer says she didn't. Someone else did. Hannah says there's nobody else there. Emily suggests, so, you know, maybe he fell. <laughs> um, Spencer says that all she saw was a black hoodie. She says Ian killed Allison and then he tried to kill her. Uh, the liars author offer further comfort, you know, just repeating, like, he's dead. He's dead now. It's okay. It's over. And then they have this big group hug as Ian's body swings brokenly below. Yeah, and we get a great Sparia moment. Spen Aria takes Spencer's face in her hands as she's reassuring her. Um, oh, you know what? Yeah, they actually, they hold hands at the beginning of this episode when everyone is watching the Nat videos, which I made a note on and then forgot because like five million other queer things happen in this episode. But we'll, we'll screenshot it. We'll put it on Instagram. Yeah, it's quite a like Sparia Hanley kind of episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the liars emerge from the church and the music cue is the music for this last like five minutes is really interesting it, it, right here. It's kind of like this sad emotional music cue as they're holding each other tightly um, as they walk out of the church, a united front, but not so fast. Barry Maple is there. He asks them if this is a joke. There's nobody in there. He says now the music has gone back to being mysterious. They go back inside the church to see no Ian. Where has Ian gone? <laughs> oh my gosh. Outside, a crowd gathers and Byron calls out to Ella across the police tape. She says she got a text from Aria. They've heard Ian Thomas is dead. She hugs Byron and says she's so sorry. For what? He 
however, is a delighted little lizard man as he comforts his wife and tells her it's okay. Like these moments of a pedophile being pushed off a bell tower make you realize that a husband's long-term deception about his affair is not a thing that really matters. Welcome to Rosewood. (sighs) The liars walk out and the crowd murmurs. Those girls knew Allison. Are they lying? Why would they lie? Noel Khan looks out at them from the crowd. The liar's phones beep with a new message from A, and they do a sequenced to simultaneous reading. It's not over until I say it is. Sleep tight while you still can, bitches. And then the final shot is the camera angle shifting to a view from above as all the people in the town are gathered around, fixated on watching the liars who stand together and apart from everyone else. Oh my God. And the Florence and the Machine song, I'm Not Calling You a Liar, is playing through this scene, which is such a great musical choice. Um, And it's, you know, some of the lyrics are, you know, I love you so much, I'm going to let you kill me, which is a really interesting line for this show. Um, And yeah, that is season one. Oh my God. It's, it's a really interesting ending because unlike many future season finales, none of the liars lives are in peril. All of the liars made it through this episode, but um, they still have a long road ahead. We still have a lot of questions, but also presumably a few answers. Um, It's yeah, it's a great way to close out the first season. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that Ian, uh, Ian is really the antagonist of this half season, whereas Wilden was the antagonist of uh, of one A. And I think that Ian is a really great antagonist. I feel like the only antagonist uh, who I prefer to him is Prezra uh, later on. But I, I just feel like uh, you know Ian as as a villain and as a foil for these young teenage girls with his. Uh, with his liking to watch them, with his always trying to get them alone, with his unsavory intentions. Um, I just feel like, and really I I said earlier about how Ian and Prezra are so similar, that's really like those themes are the themes of the show that I I really enjoy when the show speaks to them. So I feel like uh, that's why I feel like Ian and, and Prezra later on are probably the two most compelling villains that they give us. Oh, I totally agree. And, um, you know, one thing that I've wondered is whether, given all of the many twists and turns that this show took, um, if if what the liars think they know is true in this episode actually was true, if Ian actually did kill Allison and Allison was dead, in some ways, I think that would have been a really bold, good choice. I think it would have cemented Ian's villainy. I think it would have cemented Allison's death as sort of the um, the big event to kick off this whole story. As much as I love Allison, I think that there would have been a way to tell in some ways more interesting stories if she actually was dead. I think so much of the show became about whether or not she was alive and sort of then what do we do with her now that we know she is alive to a pretty ridiculous degree as the series went on. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that, I don't know, I, I sort of wish that they would have let this mystery be resolved in this episode. Yeah, I, I agree. I like Allison being alive because for such a long time, I was, um, 
a really big fan of Emerson. Uh, but I do agree that when Allison came back, they never really knew what to do with her. So in that way, I probably would be willing to trade like the somewhat flat Allison of those later seasons um, for a, a better resolution on this part of the mystery. I think that it would have been a lot cleaner uh, if we hadn't had like five million things that happened to Allison that night that were not related to her death because she wasn't actually dead. It was, you know, like everything else that went on. So yeah, I, um, I can see that. I feel like it would have been uh, a pretty satisfying conclusion if Ian being Allison's killer had been like the final result. Right. Cause I feel like when you make it be that all of these different people were involved with Allison on the night that she died, it, it kind of, absolves Ian a little bit like he's just one of many people who um I think that Melissa had a line like about that later like it felt like everybody had touched Allison that night he's like just one of 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 many people um rather than the fact that like hey this is like a creepy predator who preyed on multiple young girls and certainly he would still be a creep even if he didn't kill Allison but I think having him be the one to do it would have really sort of cemented his villainy in a way that I think um, I wish that the show would have done. I'll say. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I like that Ian is um, I liked that Ian is killed. Um, I, I mean, I, they like walk back everything on this later. Like they walk back that Ian and Allison never had a sexual relationship. They were just, you know, going to Hilton head together to have long walks on the beach and discovery of NAT videos together. Um, and they also walk back uh, Ian being dead here and they, they act like he kills himself later on. Um, but I like that this is, this is like the way that this works as the vengeance is justice. I like that um, Ian is really on the verge of killing Spencer. Like Spencer only seems to have like a few seconds left when Allison comes in and pushes Ian uh, unhesitatingly off of the bell tower, Ian, who Allison also had, um, you know, a significant investment in, uh, in her relationship with him, but she, she does it uh, in order to save Spencer. Allison is the first liar who kind of murders someone uh, on behalf of her friendship with the other girls. And I like this as justice because uh, Ian no matter what he did or didn't do with Allison, uh, whatever's going on with the NAT stuff, however that eventually turns out, he was trying to kill Spencer in earnest. Uh, and so I feel like uh, the bell tower justice that he receives is pretty much deserved. Totally agree. Yeah, I love Allison as an avenging angel. I think that it's also just so interesting in terms of... Um, you know, Allison is wearing the costume of A in this moment. Allison is wearing the black hoodie. Spencer even names it as such that Allison's in a black hoodie. Um, and A has moments of really sort of functioning as the, the person who is bold enough to do the thing that the liar wants to do, but doesn't maybe have the courage to do. Um, in, in that twisted way, Mona does that all the time. And Allison did that all the time, I think, with the liars, you know, I, encouraging them to do the things that they might not have, have necessarily been able to do on their own. So just in that way that Allie and Mona are really so much more similar than they are different, 
I think it's 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 pretty fascinating the way that Allison comes in in this moment. I agree. Um, and we talked a little bit about like, you know, what if it had been Mona in the hoodie? What if it had been Melissa in the hoodie? Like how that would have played out. I do like it being Allison for a long time. Um, my favorite, if one of the girls is a solutions was that, um, you know, maybe Spencer was a, and didn't even know like whether it was because, uh, you know, whether it was because she had, um, you know sort of a a mental break or what the situation was but that spencer hastings would have spent like all these seasons just chasing uh chasing this figment which was actually her and i kind of uh i kind of liked it in that way like that if spencer had killed ian but couldn't deal with the fact that she did it so she dissociated and believed Mm. that there was this person in a black hoodie who had tossed him off because like hannah sounds very certain when she says there's no one else here Right. I mean, to me, there's even this sense that the liars think that Spencer might have done this, that the liars don't necessarily believe oh, Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> it's like, you say whatever you need so you can sleep tonight, Spencer. <laughs> well, yeah. And we haven't, like, because we haven't actually seen Allison be back yet, we have not yet experienced her ability to disappear into thin air, like, as right. a magician's trick, like, poof she's you know she's on the grass and then she's nowhere you know boom she's in an elevator and then bam she's like gone so yeah we haven't yet seen her do that we don't know that that's one of her abilities um another thing i'll say too is that allison's action here is what i always like retroactively i guess would have loved charlotte's a to be like an a that is um you know, menacing the liars, but has no problems with killing off the 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 bad guy or, or sort of seeing who the real bad guy is. And you know, if if in some sort of parallel world, Ian had killed Allison, I'd also just like to throw a hat in the ring for this to be Cece in this moment, um, minus all of the awful like making making her the the villain. I I think what I always wanted from um, Charlotte slash Cece's A was for her to kind of be an Allison or Mona style avenging angel with a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of sort of puckish energy about her. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely, definitely see that. Um, the other the other note that this episode hits that's going to become uh, a big deal as the show goes on is we have this setup where, um, you know, something happens that seems like, well, this is going to finally put everything to rest. Ian, we know that Ian killed Allison. Ian is dead now and it's over. Like they say that when they're comforting Spencer. He's dead. He's dead. It's over. It's finally over. And like no sooner have they said that than they get outside and there's another text message from A. So it's like this, you know, this situation that they're in again and again where they're like, great, it's over. It's done. Uh, only for it to start right back up for them. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly more uh, satisfying here than it would have been in, um, in in a future season. I also just want to say that I just realized that if this, if, if I was making this, um, this A who's pushing Ian off the bell tower, Charlotte, that would definitely be a Melissa Charlotte shippy moment that Charlotte would be literally killing Melissa's husband here. (laughs) 
man. Okay, that's that's my head cannon from here on. It. <laughs> I've sold you on it. <laughs> you definitely have. Uh, so the first season is done. Um, yes. Like going back and rewatching it, like. Were there any surprises for you? Were there any um, thoughts that you had about it that you hadn't really had in, in previous viewings? Oh, man. I mean, yes. Um, I think that, you know, I think it, it was so easy to get caught up in the frustrating PLL of later seasons, you know, the bad, the bad writing, the poorly plotted mysteries, the lack of answers, um, the really sort of boring relationship drama that I think I had really forgotten just how great this first season is. You know, it's, it's, there's so many classic moments. It's the mystery is so tightly plotted. I mean, certainly there are low moments here and there. Um, and, you know, like there's a lot more Presria than I wish there was. There's a lot more Byron Montgomery than I wish there was. But there's also Paige McCullers riding her bike in the rain and, you know, um, Jenna menacingly playing her flute and, you know, Allison and Emily kissing while reading Great Expectations. I mean, there's so many great moments as well. Hannah Marin being wonderful and Mona being being so great and waving a waving a uh, um, bra as a truce you know I mean there's just there's so many great moments there are so many um there are so many queer moments the obvious ones and the not obvious ones I don't think I had realized how strongly Vandermeeren came through in this second in this first season I think um just because the more recent seasons are stronger in my memory I think that I always often would think of Vandermeeren in the context of post Mona is a reveal you know the stuff in Radley and the stuff in like season three and four so to realize how how strongly that stuff was coming through in season one was really really fun for me um and yeah I mean you know the men are awful but that wasn't a huge surprise um, but the, but the women are, the women are great for the most part and yeah, just a great season. How about you? What, what came up for you? Yeah, I, I agree. I always, I've always felt like the first two seasons of PLL were really just like very, very strong. And this is like the era of the show when I felt like it was really hitting, um, some super strong themes, uh, in terms of you know, it's feminism in terms of the bond between the liars, in terms of these young girls having to, like, band together against, like, you know, a society that was basically, like, sort of, like, simultaneously um, sexualizing them uh, for, like, for the amusement of these older guys and also, like, trivializing their experiences and not believing them uh when when they would you know try to tell people the truth um so i really love the themes i i knew that i was going to love the themes i was also surprised by how much vandermeeren there was and i was surprised by how little emerson there was uh mm -hmm. we really uh you know we we really we got the episode in the perfect storm that had the flashback of them kissing but it also had the flashback of the rejection in the locker room and then we did get, uh, you know, right here at the end, we got the, 
the snow globe present giving where Allison says things about, you know, you're the only one who really understands me. But that's really, I mean, I, I always remembered the early seasons as being more Emerson heavy, but it seems like the Emerson heavy season is like really just the season like in my memory of what I think it is. I don't, I think as we go along, I'm going to find out there wasn't really any season that was particularly heavy with them. Um, mm-hmm. But I also, Maya was a delight as we were going through this, uh, the first season, watching Maya and finally having all suspicions put to rest. Like she's not a duplicitous character. She's just this girl who's really into Emily and who helps her along in her coming out process. Um, I, I really liked that relationship Uh, And I appreciated it in a way that I hadn't before. And then, of course, like just watching Emily blossom into this, um, you know, into this out and proud uh, lady magnet, uh, then, you know, attracting one page McCullers and uh, and and also now her her girlfriend of the week at this moment, Samara. Um, It's it's just really it's really nice to see that and to see the way that the show used to um used to give weight to Emily's queerness in a way that I think that they didn't uh, as, as the seasons wore on. I totally agree. I, I think much, uh, much in the same way of, of being able to appreciate Maya, I feel like being able to appreciate Paige, knowing that there was never going to be a reveal that she was secretly evil. Um, and that in fact, she got to be like a really great queer character all the way through pretty much was really satisfying. I also feel like watching this season knowing what the end would be for Presria made me hate their relationship that much more if it was even possible. Um, knowing, you know, everything to come with Presria and everything to come with Byron too. I think, I mean, we'll certainly talk about this as the show goes on, but I always wanted Byron to get more acknowledgement and comeuppance for the absolute sleazeball that he is which ultimately never really happened. I mean, he and Ella remarry and are presumably, you know, happy by the end of the series. Oh, I like, I forgot that they remarry. And cause I was like, when they, when they have their moment at the end of this episode, I was like, Oh, it's okay. They're going to like split up again next season. <laughs> nope. I, I like blocked it out that they, Oh, Oh God. Um, <laughs> Aria, yeah. Aria officiates the wedding. Well, they probably asked a couple of other ministers who Byron had previously propositioned for thruples. So their choices were like much more oh, limited. They had to just <laughs> they had to just go with Aria. Well, yeah, he and Ella went on that date. I mean, um, but yeah, I feel like this this whole season. Um, one of the things I really appreciated was the way that the show did, as you were saying, take the time to give the stories emotional beats. This is an episode that is just chock full of plot. There's so much going on, but it still gives us that moment with Hannah and Emily on the steps um, where neither of them want to be alone and they're having this really nice friendship moment. Um, they, They give us that character development. They give us the moment where all of the liars are having the group hug at the top of the bell tower. And it's not just like, okay, everyone's safe, off to the next plot point. You know, they really, mm-hmm. um, I, I really miss that in the later seasons of the show, the way that uh, the way that they used to take time for that kind of thing. 
Totally, totally. I mean, I think like a season seven or maybe it was season six moment that I would, I, I think is somewhat similar is do you remember the moment when Hannah and Aria are on the steps of the police station and they're talking right after Hannah's broken off her engagement? Um, after she's been, after, after she's been kidnapped and come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not, I don't think that moment is nearly as good, but like, I feel like those kind of moments as the show went on that in the early seasons we would get really regularly by, by that point in the series, it was like, we were so hungry for them because they were happening so infrequently. Um, and I also feel like the action, like the physical action, just the, the blocking of this episode is so much cleaner and more sort of trackable than in later seasons when it would be like just madness by the end of an episode, you know, people running all over the place. First of all, all of the boys would inexplicably be there too. So we'd have way more characters to contend with, you know, people running up and down stairs, leaving cell phones places, like just bizarre, bizarre, nonsensical sequences of people like, running and screaming and also characters acting really foolishly in a way that that made it hard to even root for them um in this whole final action sequence with ian and spencer and then the liars coming in it's it's really fairly simple it's one person trying to kill another person um but it's so effective because of all of the choices that they're making yeah, no, I definitely agree. Also, um, in addition to the numerous PLL car accidents that we've tracked, I feel like we're going to have to keep an eye out for times someone looks for a cell phone and then winds up in grave peril. Because it happens here as Spencer's looking for Melissa's phone. It definitely happens uh, in season seven when Emily leaves her phone upstairs in the haunted house uh where spencer gets shot when they go back up to (laughs) to reclaim it so i and i I feel like there are probably like about 20 million others but that's uh that's another one to keep our eyes out for as we go forward well and hannah leaves her phone in this episode um oh yeah 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 Yeah. which i felt like hannah was not like Hannah being Hannah, she'd probably be a little bit more freaked out that she didn't have her phone. Oh, but, I think you know. that she forgot her phone because she was still clutching the burner phone because she had just sent that text message. So she ah. like, like, not that the writers put a great deal of thought, but I think in the blocking, that's why Hannah doesn't realize she's leaving her phone is because she has a phone in her hand as she dashes out. See, that's even like a reason. Like yeah. they, actually, they actually gave a character a reason to perform an action. <laughs> imagine that uh the good old days do you want to just real quickly i know that we're already a million years long but i just would it what should we just real quickly like rank the pll series season finales Ooh, okay i mean i feel like uh, oh okay um i mean maybe it'll just be like a reverse list but (laughs) I'm just going to I'm just going to pull up a list real quick and I'll just say them I'll just I'll just name them all and I'm talking not just I'm not I'm not talking um like I, we'll just say season finales so we're we're not having to rank like 14 episodes here. Okay, well um, I I'm going to tell you right off the top of my head which one I think is the best and that is Unmasked. Yes, okay, so I'm just going to name them real quick. We've got season 1 for whom the bell tolls, season 2 Unmasked. Season three, A Dangerous Game. 
season four, A is for answers. Season five, welcome to the dollhouse. Season six, hush, hush, sweet liars. And season seven, till death do us part. Okay, so I'm going to tell you from the top, my my number one is unmasked for the okay. best. And my worst is, um, what was the name of the final episode? Till death do us part till death do us part okay so best is unmasked worst is till death do us part um those are my picks for best and worst what what do you say to that and to the ones in between okay um i think i'm gonna agree agree with you on unmasked being the best i think probably for whom the bell tolls is number two yeah i would agree with that um i i actually don't like a dangerous game very much i love that whole arc of spencer i don't think that's a great episode um i would maybe do maybe welcome to the dollhouse number three. Oh, i would have probably said um a is for answers is where we wind up thinking that ezra is a correct no that's where um no Ezra, uh, that is... Oh, is that where Ezra gets shot? That's where Ezra gets shot. Oh. Well, I do like him getting shot. (laughs) But he's, like, he's, like, waxing poetic on that, on that rooftop, like, the skies, they're so beautiful tonight. And then they're all crying over his dead body. And the reveal is just that they're in New York instead of Philadelphia. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that one, no, that one's terrible. Okay. (laughs) Okay, well, I actually, um... I don't really love the episode where they wind up going to the dollhouse because I feel like I was very tired of all the courtroom drama stuff that was happening in season five. So I, I don't really, I don't really love the rest of that episode. Although the, the cliffhanger is good of them all getting kidnapped. Um, no, I, no, that's the one they're actually like in the dollhouse for that whole episode. Oh, boy i'm i'm really like man i'm not that's okay no, that's the one that episodes. that ends with them that ends with them being shut out of the dollhouse after the dollhouse prom oh okay that one's great that one okay yeah. i'll say that one is my number three so unmasked um for whom the bell tolls and then the one where they're in the dollhouse so okay those those are my top three uh, the okay. worst one is Till Death Do Us Part. Um, okay. I think number four for me is A Dangerous Game. Agreed. Um, and then I'm going to say the next... Oh, God. I just... Hush, hush, Sweet Liars. And... Um... A, A is for Answers is for answers you know what i you know what i wanted to put on there and i think this is part of why i was getting confused is because they have those those darn half season finales i really wanted to put game over as my um game over misgender i wanted to put that um on, on my list of worst but that's actually a half season finale so i can't um I mean, we could, we if we wanted to expand this, we could include the half-season episodes. No, I'm just going to give that one an honorable mention for almost as bad as Till Death Do Us Part. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. So what do you think about the the other two and, and how they should rank down there at the bottom of the list? I um I would I would probably I would put A is for answers above um hush hush sweet liars. Uh I think that there is some good stuff in that episode. Maybe there's we do get a few answers. Um we get the reveal that Mona and Allison spent the night together at the Lost Woods. So <laughs> that's a good thing. Um is that the but episode? Like- Aren't they just like sitting around in a coffee shop for most of that episode? They are, but at least they're together. And Hannah keeps like- Hannah keeps making really loud noises with the cookies. Like she keeps <laughs> Yep. Is that the episode? No, I think that that's for Okay, I'm trying What's the episode? I think it's Escape from New York where they have the convert where they're on the stage and they have that conversation. That's Escape from New York. Correct. Um, that's See, this is in that era of the show like where it's like in two. season 5 where yeah. it's two parts and I just I can't I can't handle that. Okay, so here's my here's my definitive ranking. I think we might have the same. Maybe. Um season 2 unmasked number 1. Season 1 for whom the bell tolls number 2. Season five. They're in the dollhouse. Welcome, welcome to the dollhouse, number three. I'm going to say season four, A is for answers. Number oh, four. See, I'm going to put Dangerous Game as number four. Oh, I'm sorry. Dangerous Game, number four. That's what I meant to say. Dangerous okay. Game, number four. A is for answers, number five. Um, hush, hu- uh, yes, Hush, Hush, Sweet Liars number six until death do us part number seven yes i think that i think that that is right and true and i actually think and this will be a probably later discussion i actually think that many of the half season finales are stronger than the than the season finales themselves Mm. yeah i would i would also agree with that in many ways minus game over um which is a terrible episode um yes but that one it's so funny because that one is similar to the coffee shop episode in my mind where it's like the liars are like not doing much of anything except just like standing around or sitting around while people explain things to them and like like that one has like the the giant like holographic screen that they're just watching flashbacks on (laughs) Oh my god, someday we're gonna have to talk about that episode. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, if the heat death of the universe doesn't find us first. True. Uh, but there are a lot of great episodes in between. Um, yes, I I actually, yes, I think that the second part of that season five finale, Escape from New York, I actually think is a pretty good episode. It has some good moments. Um, it has hannah commenting on liking spencer's field hockey skirt which will always bump it up a few notches in my book um yes so many episodes my goodness but this was season one and we get to talk about season two next yes very exciting we are actually going to take a one-week break to give ourselves uh to give ourselves a little time to get in the season two headspace so yes. we, will be, we will be back, uh, not next week, but the week after, with, uh, with It's Alive, and we will jump right in to season two. 
Yes, we are very excited. Um, if you have thoughts on this episode, if you have an alternative ranking of PLL season finales, if you want, um, if you want to include the the mid season finales in there, be our guest. You can reach out to us at everybodyapodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our Instagram at everybodyapodcast. You can give us a rating and review on iTunes. Um, we we know that there is a new perfectionist episode airing tomorrow. At some point, we will probably talk about it. Um, we don't really know when, though, do we? Uh, no, I think we're we're right now looking at maybe just checking in on the happenings in Beacon Heights uh, with a bonus episode every now. Hey, everybody, a everybody gay listeners, our audio got cut out at the end here. Um, This is Vina just recording uh, this little outro here to let you know, uh, Joanna was just telling everybody where you can read our fix. Um, We are over on archive of our own. She is at Speak Pirate. I am at LCO123. Um, But we will be back in two weeks with the first episode of season two. We have had such a blast recording this first season. So glad people are listening. Um, And if you want to get in touch with us again, you can always reach out to our email um, or check out our Instagram. Thank you. And uh, we look forward to recording the beginning of season two.